Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. So here's the question. How important is childhood to your adult self? Did your childhood affect how you are in life today? You know, how about if you're married? Do you look at your partner sometimes and think, oh, that's definitely from when she was a child or when he was from a child? You know, we can often see it in our partners that, yes, they were very much affected before they even met me. And that has affected how they are in our relationship and how they are in our family and and everything else. And we therapists and counselors know that we often try to help you connect the dots between the present and the past. Often will help you see that very much your childhood has affected your life. And we want to parse out in what ways has it affected your life in a positive way and in what ways has it affected your life in a negative way. Let's say you're the product of a divorce or you've seen violence in your home or your refrigerator was empty when you were a kid. Do you think that might have affected how you are as an adult? Well, our guest today is someone who has studied very much what it was like to be a one-year-old and how that might have affected how they are as grown-ups. Yes, one-year-old. You could be the person grown up with your one-year-old sense of commitment and connection to people. Our guest is Bethany Saltman, author of one of the top science books of 2020 called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. She's going to talk to us about this very famous psychology experiment called the Strange Situation Experiment and talk to us about something called attachment styles and how your attachment style might be affecting how you are as a grown-up. Welcome to The Positive Mind. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So does it matter how you were raised as an infant and as a child? Absolutely. It depends on what you are looking at, however. Um, In your intro, you mentioned things like violence, having um, food in the fridge, and these things are going to affect us in different ways. What I looked at was a very specific kind of relational dynamic that affects us throughout our lives, and that's attachment. Um, And so certainly violence is going to traumatize most people in a certain way that will be affected by attachment as will hunger. However, attachment is something that is so specific to the adult's inner workings of their own attachment system that things like poverty really um, don't have anything to do with it. So, you know, if you're under certain kinds of stress, you are at a higher risk for an insecure attachment, but attachment actually doesn't have anything to do with the so-called type of family you grow up in. So attachment is basically how a child feels attached to their primary caretaker. Exactly. So attachment, and the classical literature calls it attachment patterns. And I make that distinction between patterns and styles because a lot of people take quizzes and things online to find out what their attachment, quote, style is. And that's very different from the science that I studied, which is... um, really administered in a clinical or in a laboratory setting. So the strange situation is a procedure that takes place in a lab. 
that you have to be um, very well trained to begin to even understand what you're looking at. And in adult attachment, we've got what's called the adult attachment interview, which is an hour long interview that gets translated or that gets transcribed verbatim and then coded using very, very meticulous kinds of um, procedures. So, so it's very distinct from what might loosely be called attachment styles. Everybody says, Hey, I'm avoidant. I'm preoccupied. Right. Maybe, but it's, but it will be, it'll, you know, look different if you're actually working with one of these experts. Um, But in terms of what is attachment um, exactly, simply put, it's, it's the way a child, the way a baby by the time they're one year old, relates to their caregiver in times of stress. And that's really important to remember. It's about stress. What happens when a child is under stress? Do they or do they not experience their caregiver as a secure base? Does the caregiver bring the child back to their own level of homeostasis, regardless of their temperament? Some children are more activated. Some children are more subdued. It doesn't matter wherever that child is before a stressful incident occurs and the, and the, and the parent is available. Can they use that parent as a secure base to soothe themselves? That's what attachment is looking at. And you can imagine how important this is because if you're three, four, five months, six months, eight months, a year, and your mother is there and you're under stress and you do not feel soothed and secure what that must do to your nervous system and to your mind and your developing mind exactly and to your sense of trust right because um you know parents are parents primary job is not to you know setting aside shelter and food which really can be done by anybody Um, the primary caregiver is responsible for what's called co-regulation so what's going on inside of the parent's mind, heart, body, um, sensations is really how they mirror back to the child. So if the baby is uncomfortable because their diaper is wet or they're hungry and the, the caregiver can't respond in a way with affect and with their own sensory um, experience, mm. then the child feels like they're falling into an abyss. Right. Like, wait a minute. How come I feel so strongly and my caregiver isn't giving that back in kind? And that isn't because the caregiver doesn't care or because the caregiver doesn't love the child or because the caregiver is deficient, but they were probably not received with a kind of sensory output of experience in their own life. And so they, they haven't learned to relate to their own feelings. And this is what gets passed down again and again through generations. So a parent might be insecurely attached themselves. And so when their baby exactly. needs their attention, their affection, their attunement, yes. they might be attuned to their own problems. I'm busy paying the rent or I'm busy worrying about this or worrying about my parents or remembering when I was hurt. And so you only have a wet diaper. Why should I pick you up for that? I'll do that later. Well, actually, I would say that the parent who is insecurely attached, for instance, an avoidant parent, may be thinking about their problems of paying the rent um, or of their own parent, but they're not actually relating to it. That's what an insecure attachment is. It's not relating to your own inner life. And so 
when the child is having an, an issue, is, is experiencing upset, disturbance, dysregulation, they need to be able to be met in that and mirrored in that. And the insecure adult doesn't have access to their own internal experience. Right. So they can't bring it, as it were, to the child. So that kind of brings to mind what you say later in the book, Dr. Burke Harris, when she was talking about a polluted well of water. And if you have 100 people expo drinking from the well and 98 of them have diarrhea, you might want to go and check the water. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it strikes me if you're having an insecurely attached child um, or an insecurely attached parent, you might want to look at what's causing or what caused this insecurity. Or why is this nervous system never achieving a sense of completion and um, what do you call it, stasis? Or So is that what what is going on now that the research is going into looking at what is causing this insecurity, insecure attachments, and how to, you know, help a greater number of the population? Well, since the 50s and 60s, that's what the attachment research has been looking at. So it hasn't, it's become much more fine-tuned and much more connected to neuroscience and, you know, as the field of psychology and neuroscience um, progress, as does attachment theory. Um, but that's always been the question. What is it that creates um, a certain kind? Well, first of all, is attachment a thing? Is it real? And as John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth found, yes, it is in fact real. It is something, it is a behavioral system like caretaking and fear, affiliation, sexuality. These are whole body, mind, behavioral systems that each one of us is born with. So that's the beginning. And then why does that exist? It exists to keep um, children safe and alive because it creates a bond between a child and the caregiver. Right. And then what happens if that's not an optimal kind of bond? Um, the effects are pretty profound. If you don't feel like someone has your back, or as I like to talk about it, if you're the apple of someone's eye, and it doesn't have to be all the time, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, in some kind of like storybook hallmark way. It's very human. This is, this is, you know, if you think about human beings, 65% of us are considered securely attached and that's a universal number. And if you think about the diversity of human experience, the number of families that don't have food in the fridge, the number of families that do experience a little bit of violence, the number of families whose parents are certainly not perfectly attuned, certainly not, feeding their kids organic food, limiting screen time, you know, all the things, wearing slings, getting their kids into, you know, classes and SAT prep and all the things that, that so many of us in the West think are what make us good parents. We, it's, it's a very humbling thing to think about. You don't have to be anything special to be um, securely attached or to, or to raise a securely attached child. All you have to do is have some experience and some comfort with your own emotions, your own difficult feelings. I, I just feel like every parent out there has this huge pressure on them 
to not make the mistakes their parents did, to raise a generation. It's a confusing time. It's all these things. And, and I really appreciate how you sort of normalize the experience. And through, you know, in this book, you share so much of your own experience. It really is a personal journey to understand, you know, how to be the best parent. And, and you speak about how you were influenced by the attachment parenting movement and mindful parenting and how, for better or worse, it was the sort of jumping post to this discovery, this whole exploration on some level. Well, attachment parenting is something that I actually have a big problem with. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when I, when I was younger and my daughter was just born, she's 14 now, almost 15 actually, um, and I had learned about Dr. Sears and so-called attachment parenting, I, like so many women, felt really ashamed that because the way he talks about his version of attachment security, um, he says that it's natural to feel all of these things. It's natural to feel attuned. And I didn't feel attuned to my daughter. I felt resentful. I felt angry. I felt I was really struggling. And so, um, and his version of attachment has absolutely nothing to do with the science of attachment. He is actually a conservative Christian um, who has a very specific agenda about wanting women to stay in the home. And so this is very thinly veiled um, anti-feminist BS that I am on a mission to unravel for people because they, he has convinced a generation of parents that if they don't take care of their children in this very specific way, then their children won't be attached and nothing could be further from the truth. It has Attachment has absolutely nothing to do with slings, where your kid sleeps, if you nurse, if you don't nurse, if you go to work, if you don't go to work, none of those things matter. What matters is how the parent feels about their own experience and if they can metabolize their own sensations and actually show up in life for themselves and for their child. It's so much simpler than we think it is. So, So attachment parenting, yes, it got me thinking about the word, but I quickly realized that attachment um, as per Mary Ainsworth has nothing to do with Dr. Sears and and is in conflict with it. Mindful parenting, you know, I don't really know exactly what that is. I am a longtime Zen practitioner, so I kind of brought my own version of mindfulness to this. And it turns out that there is a distinct correlation between one's attachment security and one's mindfulness. So the more secure we are in ourselves, in our ego, in our trust of the world, the easier it is to be present moment to moment. And that, of course, creates more security generation after generation. What about oxytocin? <laughs> I mean, uh, what about I, I think most people would think, well, it's natural for a mother to bond with her child and, you know, be a secure base for her child or, or you know, be attuned to her child, that it might be natural. Um, and the science is often that there's a flood of oxytocin that makes this possible, that this bonding is natural. Of course, there's the phenomena of postpartum depression, right, where a, a mother just doesn't feel anything for the child or worse, you know, just feels alienated or whatever. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how could he say there are certain requirements for attachment that clearly contradicts sometimes what women actually really experience, which might be that they don't want to bond with the child, that, that it's not necessarily so natural for them to be attached. 
Can you talk a little bit about oxytocin or what I'm saying here with postpartum? In terms of oxytocin, I, I wouldn't see it as such a polarity. Either you're flooded with feel-good hormones and you feel totally bonded or you feel nothing. Right. You know, we're human beings. Women are human beings. We have the spectrum of emotion like other human beings. And the more securely attached we are, the more available all of those emotions are to us. I, for instance, um, struggled with feeling not that I, I, I loved my baby deeply and dearly, but I didn't always feel super inspired to show up in the way that I thought I should. Um, it turns out I'm totally securely attached and so is she. So, you know, that I think is the real takeaway. And I you went through this long journey of studying the science and putting myself in these situations where I was getting the feedback of the science to learn this about myself. The takeaway for me is that, you know, what we're calling the whole conversation around secure, insecure is the problem. People always ask me, like, well, what do I do if I'm insecure? I get these DMs from from mothers, of course, never fathers, asking, you know, my child, telling me these intricate stories of what's going on at daycare or when their child says goodbye or when there are reunions and, you know, trying to do this sort of strange situation parlor game, which I totally understand. I I do it myself Um, and saying, I think that there is a problem. I think that my child is insecure because of X, Y, or Z reason. What do I do? And I always say, first of all, if you're paying that close attention to what's going on with your child during reunion, don't worry about it. You're, you're in good shape. The hallmark of a securely attached adult is that we value attachment. So if you are thinking about, and like you were saying earlier, you know, maybe the, the adult is preoccupied thinking about their own parents and, and why they parented the way they do. Well, if a parent is preoccupied, that's one thing. But if, if a parent is thinking about my parents, how they parented me, how I'm going to do it differently or the same. That is a sign of security. That's what we want. We're looking for the ability to to think um, clearly and to have some mindfulness, some mind sight, mind mindedness. You know, there are a million terms for reflective functioning around our thoughts, around our attachments. And a truly avoidant person is not doing that. They are not looking at their child and thinking about their parents or their past or their own attachment. They're just sort of taking care of business. And that's where the child feels abandoned. So if you're worrying about whether you're doing it right or not, chances are you're doing it right. I mean, it's probably an overstatement, but it's safe to say. Because because there's such a a big percentage of securely based, securely attached children worldwide, um, you know, 65 percent, most of you are doing it right. So we'll talk a little. Especially the ones who are fretting about it. Especially the ones, right. The ones who are trying to get their kid into the kindergarten in the Upper West, Upper East Side. I mean, you know, there's there's definitely something to be said for for being over-involved and that doesn't score well. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I can't make generalizations, but, you know, put it this way, the, the hallmark of a securely attached adult is that they value attachment. Right. So let's, let's go to Mary Ainsworth. I really want our audience to get a picture of this breakthrough procedure that she developed because um, it makes so much sense to me. It made so much sense when I was studying it in grad school. It made so much sense when I was reading your book. Paint a picture for our audience about this procedure, the strange situation procedure? 
Sure. Um, so the strange situation comes from Mary Ainsworth's work in Baltimore. Um, the first study that she did of mothers and babies was in Uganda. And she was visiting um, 26 mothers and their children um, every couple of weeks and spending hours with them just observing and, and trying to notice where attachment relationships took place. And so she was a white woman in Uganda. Many of these people had never seen a white person before. When she um, returned to the States and went to Baltimore and she wanted to redo this study, she realized that, you know, since, since attachment, as we talked about earlier, is the way that a child responds to their caregiver in a stressful situation, she wasn't seeing as much of this, what's called secure base activity, this moving back and forth between, you know, exploring, the, exploring life and then returning to the mother as a secure base. She wasn't seeing as much of that in, her, in the babies and mothers in Baltimore. And she thought, well, maybe that's because in Uganda, I was the strange thing. They uh. weren't used to seeing a white person. So I saw a lot more stress and a lot more back and forth between, you know, me sort of playing with these kids and then they'd like scooch back to their mother's laps. And that's when she started to see this secure base behavior happening. And so she thought, well, these babies in Baltimore who are used to, you know, most of them are white. Um, and they're used to me and they're used to, they're Americans, they're used to new people, they're, you know, used to babysitters and all the rest of it. Maybe I need to add a little bit of stress to their systems in order to see their attachment behavior at work. And so that's when she said, maybe I should take them into the lab and create a stressful situation that's just stressful enough to get their attachment system online, but not so stressful that they go over threshold and disintegrate. And that's where the strange situation was born. So she came up with it in half an hour. Um, and the, the idea is that um, a baby and a caregiver are brought into a ordinary room with toys and two chairs and, um, and there's a mirror where the observers can see, but the people in the room can't see them. And so the, the mother and the caregiver come into the room and automatically, you know, the observers are watching. What kind of a baby is this? There are toys on the floor. Most children go to the toys and start to play. Some babies don't. Some babies are running circles around the room, you know, from the minute they get there. And then you notice how the baby is relating to the mother is this baby one of those kids who's checking in with their mother a lot from the beginning? Um, you know, so you're just sort of getting a flavor for the child's temperament. And so that's considered episode one. There are nine episodes in this 20-minute procedure. Okay. And so the, the second episode is when a stranger comes in and we see what the, what the child does in relation to the stranger. The mother's still in yeah, the room. Yeah, the mother's still in the room, exactly. Oh. And the mother and the stranger kind of chit-chat and, you know... And you see what the baby does. And then the mother leaves the room and you notice what happens to the baby. Does the, is the baby really upset? And if so, does the stranger manage to soothe the baby? Now, this is really interesting because Americans love to have independent babies. And they love it when they, they Americans love to say things like, I can give my baby to anybody and they're totally comfortable. Right. Now, that might be great from a child care point of view, but from an attachment point of view, you actually want the mother to have a differential relationship to the baby 
So that the mother is what I call in the book, the big guns. You want the mother to be able to do, or the caregiver, the father, the aunt, the grandmother, whomever, the nanny sometimes. You want the primary caregiver to be special. That is um, one of the markers of a securely attached relationship. It's a special dynamic. It's, it's one of mutual delight. It's something that doesn't happen with everybody. So if the child is able to be soothed by the stranger, that's just you know something to take note of. And then the mother returns. That's reunion number one. Does the child go to the mother seeking proximity? Does And by the way, this, this procedure has been done with all kinds of children and caregivers, typical, neuro, you know, neuro, neurally atypical, grandparents, pets, men, women, you know, every- Throughout and, the world. Know, any, and every, any and everybody and around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So you're looking at the first reunion. Does the baby- um, go to the mother because we can assume that there's some stress involved and is the mother going to function as a secure base for the baby. And so then the mother leaves the room and the child is alone. And that's really when we're looking at, okay, what is this? What kind of a person is this, this baby? Is this person going to collapse? Is the, is the baby going to run to the door, stand up and scream? What's going to happen? And then the, um, the, the stranger comes again does the stranger work or not? The stranger leaves and the, the stranger and the mother sort of come, they intersect right. and the mother comes back. And then that's the, that's the reunion that's most important in the whole strange situation. Mary Ainsworth and her crew used to code every single minute, every inch of proximity seeking on the floor. They had these grids on the floor to see where the baby was moving. It was you know, incredible. Yeah. But <clears throat> over the years, what's become clear is that what's really important is that second reunion. That's the part that really is getting coded. Does the baby go for proximity? And what happens when the baby does? Does the mother respond? Does the baby seek proximity, but then you know, scale back? Do they sit there and, and ignore the mother? Do they, um, that's, you know, what the avoidant baby does or the resistant baby goes in for a hug, but then swats at the, at the mother. Right. Um, so there are all kinds of she's ways. angry at the mother. Uh, exactly. Right. So children, little babies can be angry as well. Just to, oh, yeah. just to remember. And, yeah. And but their, before their anger they did has this a target. Work, yeah. Yeah. Before they did this work, nobody thought that babies at one could be angry. Right. Or they like might be angry. teething instead. Yeah, right. exactly. Angry about some sort of physical personal discomfort problem. Exactly. Yeah, and not about the relationship, not about exactly. the break in the relationship. So you're painting a very clear picture, and it's very even as you're describing it. And there are other eight scenarios. There's a this is a very complicated procedure. Very. Yeah. I mean, you can simplify it if you want. I'm sure. Like, yeah, we just, just did. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, anybody can try it at home, and you can. Well, see. no, I'm gonna. I'm oh, gonna say oh, okay. No. Well, Please you don't. Cut, cut me Please off don't of that. try Please it at home don't. because you're not going to know what you're looking for, and you're going to drive yourself crazy. Right. Do not try this at home but, no offense no okay i'm glad you <laughs> yeah. you pointed that out because no, i could just no, please don't i could just see how important the results are i mean if you're seeing your child panic when you leave the room like a dog let's say like a you know certain kinds of animals will panic when their caretaker even you know is out of eyesight i mean that's I could, not the issue though when when you come back See, that's what's most important about this. Everybody thinks it's about what happens when the baby's left alone. That is totally irrelevant because we are all different kinds of people. That's where temperament comes in. Mm -hmm. Some kids are panicky. That's fine. 
The issue is what happens when the caregiver returns? Does the panic subside or not? Right. Does the parent does the parent function as a secure base to bring the baby back to their homeostasis? Some kids are really hyper. Some kids are fussy. Some kids are never settled and happy. Hmm. That's fine. That has nothing to do with attachment. That's temperament. What attachment does is shows us, can the the caregiver get in there to help the child self-soothe back to their level of homeostasis, whatever that is. So don't worry about what happens when you leave. Pay attention to what happens when you return, which is exactly why I say do not try this at home. This is something that is a well-honed instrument. I studied it for a week, you know, nonstop. It's still constantly unfolding. This is a very intricate situation (laughs) and strange. So, um, And I'm sure there are like, you know, exponentially millions of variations that you could imagine, like the child. Actually, no. The child does panic, and then the mother comes back and does sue. The child doesn't panic, but the mother comes back and can't soothe. Or the child, um, mildly upset. You know, there's degrees of being upset. Maybe you don't focus on that aspect of it at all in the in the procedure. I don't know, but if you did, there could be so many variations. I think you could pay attention to. It's true, but the fascinating thing is that um, all babies fall into four basic categories, really three. I'm going to ask you to to tell us those when we come back from our break. It's a time for our break. We are here with Bethany Saltman, the author of one of the best science books of this year, and for good reason. She takes up Mary Ainsworth's uh, procedures and shows us the current research on attachment. It is called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And welcome back to The Positive Mind. I'm here with Kevin O'Donohue. I'm Nasima Diane-Demer. And we're in conversation with Bethany Saltman, author of Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And just a little bit more about Bethany. She's a published author in The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Atlantic Monthly. She's also a best-selling book coach. She is leading groups specifically for therapists who want to write their book. We're going to have information about her on our podcast and on our website and ways that you can get in touch with her. BethanySaltman.com is also a great place to go to um, see more about her, read her blog. She's got a great blog about parenting and about some of this attachment stuff that is in her book. And it kind of pulls out some of the... um, some details and lists that'll help you out. And boy, does she know how to write a book. This is a great book. We've both read it, Nasima and I, from cover to cover. 
easy read, very enjoyable. Even it, if you're not a psychologist or psychotherapist, very enjoyable book to read. Yeah, I'll tell you, like I've read some other books on attachment and found myself very lost. And this book, I think because sh- you've related your experience throughout and then the science, which I also love, like I love personal story, I love science. And here you kind of, you just wove it together so beautifully. And we got to learn so much about Mary Ainsworth and all this sort of founders of this work. And it started back in the 50s, 60s? 50, yeah, 51. It's yeah, been 50s. a while. It's been in development for a while and and groundbreaking stuff. Because before this, I mean, we were all kind of, I think, sort of floating in this morass of like, you know, I had a stressful childhood. I'll never be able to overcome this. How will I be a parent of any worth if if my life was kind of troubled? Let's let's use that as a sort of goal for the the second half of the show, where we can you know answer those questions. Maybe you're interested in in discovering well, what type am I? What was I uh, as a child? How am I as a parent? Uh, before the break, uh, Bethany was saying that the, because of this procedure, the strange situation procedure, there are three types that we all fall into. Wouldn't it be useful to know? what type you are, and if you're a certain type, whether or not you can change it. So, so yeah, you know. And maybe how that shows up in your life now as an adult. Right. So, yeah. Bethany, can you do that? Um, tell us the three possibilities. Sure. There are actually more than three, but there are three basic ones. So the, the most prevalent um, classification that most babies in the strange situation receive is secure. So that's really good news. Secure, and as we were talking about before the break, it doesn't have anything to do with temperament. You can be a super chill secure. You can be a sort of edgy secure. There are many types of secure babies. All, all secure means is that you can, I, I like to say, you know where your bread is buttered. You can go to your parent, your primary caregiver when you're in need. And for the most part, in some manner that basically functions, you get your need met. So this is most of us. Um, A smaller portion of us are what's called insecure resistant, meaning um, sometimes you get your needs met, sometimes you don't. This is um, the case for insecure, I mean, for uh, inconsistent parents, parents who, um, you know, are really open and warm and generous one minute and then kind of shut down and angry the next. Now, this is part of all of us because everybody's going to say, oh, that's me. But, you know, we're right. all all of these things. Yeah. It's really a matter of propensity and how how much of this kind of field are you sowing, you know? And um, in this and, case, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's what the child is feeling in this case. Before you were saying, like, how the child reacts in the strange situation procedure isn't the issue. It's how the mother can help soothe. And, and, and no, get the... I said, nope. I said, what's important is not what the mother can do, but how the child responds right. to the caregiver when the caregiver returns. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so attachment is the child's point of view. Caregiving is the adult's point of view. Right. So the attachment system is always about the child's point of view. From a child's point of view, if, if your parent is inconsistent, you may end up feeling like you don't trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. 
So when you're in the strange situation and your parent returns and you're under stress, you know, all of the research shows that, you know, babies, even the most placid ones, they, you know, they've put, um, you know, heart rate monitors on them and tested their saliva and they are under stress. Their, their stress hormones are up, their heart rate is up, they're flushed, they're stressed. But, but a, a resistant child, an insecure resistant child, otherwise known, it's also sometimes called insecure ambivalent. When the, when the caregiver enters the room, they may go in for proximity, but then they quickly retreat and then they go again and then they retreat. This okay. child okay. is up on their mom's, you know, in her arms and then swatting at her face and oh, wanting to be let down and right. never settling. This is not about what the mother is, quote, doing or not doing. Right. It's a dynamic. Okay. Okay. And so some babies are, are, you know, I just wrote a blog today about goodness of fit. I consider myself so lucky. My daughter has, is, has my half birthday. We, you know, she's a, a perfect Aquarian. I'm a perfect Leo. We are a perfect fit. Thank God. Temperamentally, you know, astrologically. Huh. Um, and, and that's not the case for everybody. You know, sometimes you're a highly sensitive person like me and you end up with sort of a ADD profile child or, you know, a, a boy who can't sit still or a girl who can't sit still or, you know, who knows? And then that's going to be a much more difficult attachment to forge. Okay. And that's just reality, you know? So, so the insecure, um, resistant child is, is that kind of coming and going. And then there's the insecure what percentage, avoidant. What percentage yeah. would be a, a resistant? Um, that's is... like a, a you know it, it gets split down the middle, but it, it, they're resistant. Uh, resistant is more common than avoidant. Okay. So sixty five percent is secure, and then it's a little bit more on the resistant side, a little bit less on the avoidant side. Okay. So um, the avoidant baby, when again under stress, when they're left alone in the strange situation, this is a scientific fact. Um, but when the, the parent approaches, they don't even go in for proximity. They may glance at the door. They may not. They don't use the parent as a secure base at all. They don't even try. And that's by one year old. And that's, they, that's a child who's given up. It's a very, very sad thing to see. It's pretty common. It's so, very sad. So my whole audience is wondering, how do of I course. fix myself? <laughs> Is that possible? Right. If you right. are secure, you're all good. But if not, if you suspect that you're insecure, avoidant, or insecure, resistance slash ambivalent, how do I change this? How does it How does it look, first of all? How does it show up as an adult? Right. Well, it shows up very much the way it does in, a, in the strange situation as a baby. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that over the lifespan, without extreme events in the positive or the negative, our attachment patterns do have a tendency to remain stable. Now, positive and negative events happen all the time, so they can change us for the better or for the worse. But with 75% predictability, our attachment patterns are passed down to the next generation. Now, you know, another thing to really think about here is that, you know, this is not, with that said, this is not a life sentence. And another thing to remember is that even within the patterns of insecure, avoidant, and insecure, resistant, these are still patterns of attachment. They work. This is not, you know, people in the abyss of disaster. This is a tendency. 
It's, it's, it, all it is indicating is your comfort with your feelings. Hmm. You know, that's the way I think about it. So if you're an insecure avoidant, how are you with your feelings? Avoidant. So you're externalizing. You're a major externalizer. You're really focused on achievement. You're really focused on appearances. You're really focused on how things look on the outside. You're maybe a workaholic. Maybe you're concerned about, you know, how you look in, in, in the community and your family is saying, hey, what about us? Very you know, important. That's sort, of a, yes. that's sort of a typical avoidant profile. Right. As an adult, the resistant person is what's called preoccupied. They are in relationships that are really intense and they're in and out of relationships and they can't really settle in relationships exactly like the resistant child in the strange situation. Mm-hmm. Unsettled. And now the secure adult can look all kinds of ways. I mean, me being a, a poster child for security never in a million years would have occurred to me because I've had a complicated life, you know, all the way through. And I, you know, I have stable relationships, but I'm intense and I have strong feelings (laughs) and well, you don't know me that well. (laughs) And, um, you know, so there, so I think it's very, very important to not think of security as some catch all for not suffering. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's a good point. Because it's such a nice word. Secure. Oh, I'm secure. You're insecure, but I'm secure. Exactly. And so, and it's not about being insecure as a person. We're all insecure. We're all insecure. If we weren't secure, we'd be enlightened Buddhas. Right. So we're all insecure. But what attachment security and insecurity is looking at is really just your your command of your ability to um, get your needs met. And as you said, like to process and digest your emotions, how, how exactly. are you with your emotional state? Um, do you have capacity to feel, express your emotions in a healthy way? Um, and can maybe even use those <clears throat> or emotions? At all. Yeah, or at all. I would say at all, at because all. avoidant people don't express emotions. So right. they can go in later life, get a therapist or somebody who can teach, yep. them, let them, hey, you have some feelings. You might not know it, but they're there. I'm hearing them. Why don't the you problem do- is getting the avoidant person into therapy. Yeah. They're probably into right. therapy. If right. they're listening to this podcast, they're probably not avoidant or someone that they know in their life is making them listen mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're like, you're driving me crazy. Right, right. I so, can't reach you. Yes, right. Yes. Where are you? I'm right here. What are you talking about? Right. I do the dishes. I bring them the bacon. What's the problem? Mm-hmm. I can't feel you. That's the problem. Right. And thus, why can't why can't I feel you? Because you can't feel you. Why can't you feel you? Because your parents couldn't feel them. Right. And why couldn't, couldn't that themselves. that happen? You know, on and on and on. It's not a bad thing. It's a perfectly good strategy, and it's an organizing principle. It's a it's a pattern, and we can we can enliven that pattern by first thing noticing it. Right. Yeah. That's the first step, and that actually is a tremendous step. Because the avoidance is not being in touch with the thing itself. And so just by studying attachment, by noticing attachment, by wondering about attachment, we're moving the needle toward secure attachment. And something I might say about avoidance, because, again, like if if emotions were just never mirrored, were never in the trauma world, we call this a state of uncoupling. 
There was exactly. no place for the emotion to go. There was no connection mm. to emotion within the in the nervous system, in the brain, in the relational field. They're not even in the realm of their experience, their emotions. So it's like, and it's a lot of energy to start to learn how to metabolize. So taking it very slowly is really important. Absolutely. And this is why, like, coming into a therapeutic relationship, you can start to just open that door very, very slowly because it's a, it's a lot of energy that's not being metabolized. And there's a reason why it's not there because there is no capacity for it. So, so, you know, just to, you know, give a shout out to these folks and like what, what needs to happen and same even with the resistant, like I get that sense of like that being able to manage that push pull and the sort of relational field being stable, like, how to really trust that, how to come into a sense of trust of yourself and the other and, and, um, and to just take it really slowly. And it, and it is like a mind body experience that it really you know, is needs to be cultivated. Um, That's why somatic work is so important. It can be very bottom up. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like to, to bring a, an avoidant person into presence through their sensations is a really good way to go. That's why mindfulness practice is incredibly important and and effective Mm. in helping people become more securely attached as adults. And then it will help. And I always tell people, if you can't do it for yourself because you've got so much guilt and shame and because we live in a patriarchy that tells women they're not human, do it for your children because I know you've been programmed to think you're supposed to be working hard on your kid's behalf. Learn how to practice mindfulness for them if you can't do it for yourself because it is a one-to-one kind of benefit. Right. You know, from an attachment perspective, self-care is child care. Right. Yeah, generational care. Um, so let's just uh, point out some of the benefits of a secure attachment. I mean, you know, your book says if you're not secure, first of all, you know, I can't, say enough about the importance of exploration for a child, for an infant. Even I, I mean, I knew that even not ever picking up a book. And you can tell which kids go out and explore the world and which kids don't. Um, yeah, play. Play is key. Play. And, and I wanted to bring in, yeah, with play, you talk about that's where the importance of fathers can come in. Or the additional caregiver or whoever in yes. the family that, that play right. is, a, is a big part of that. Yeah, well, play is actually a huge part of the attachment equation because if a child is insecure, they never relax. And you can't play while you're tense. Right. That's the opposite of play. Right. You know, like my daughter, God bless her, she is almost 15 and the girl still plays. And I'm watching her move her play into like film editing, you know, less childish in huge air quotes kinds of activities. Yeah. But that ability to relax in your own presence comes from having a secure base. Relax. And that's what play is. And in the strange situation, that's what's being looked at. Is the child playing? One of my favorite Um, phrases comes from Mary Main, who was Mary Ainsworth's student, and she developed, along with some others, the adult attachment interview. And she uses a phrase that she calls attentional flexibility, which I love. I think about it all the time. I see it in people, you know, like 
in the in the strange situation, the child's attentional flexibility is coming into into play when they are able to play with the toys and then look at the mom come through the door and then get get their kind of insecurity soothed and then they go back to playing and then the mom is gone again and they look to see what's happening and then that insecurity gets taken care of and then they go back to playing that's attentional flexibility we all know adults who cannot do that right you're we get rigid because we can't relax on in a deep deep way Bethany, we only have five minutes left, and I do okay. want to ask you, because, wait, I know it's going fast, but there's, there's so many implications to all of what we're saying. And, you know, one for me is how do you help, you know, most typically a man who has no feelings and has no access to his feelings or, or a mother or, or whoever, an adult who has to what therapies can we design to help them see the wonderful world of feeling and get color back in their life and maybe you know, present or help the next generation at least not go through life not feeling as well. So, I mean, I think that's certainly something we want to have you back on to talk about and all these implications. In the book, you talk about the Steeles, Dr. Steele and his wife, who um, I I might have it wrong. but Miriam and Howard. Miriam and Howard. I know. There's so many names. Miriam and Howard, yeah. And the concept for them was about these videos that they were showing parents. Yes. And yeah. I, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. What, you know, when I was teaching high school, I thought we are so still in the dark ages about how to teach that if every teacher was videotaped doing their classes mm. and, and really given time to study it and look at it, that they would improve immeasurably and the students would get so much benefit. Uh, and still that's not happening. But I thought in this case, the videotaping of mothers being mothers and the attachment situation this strange situation etc yeah and how they put it together in a positive way so can you talk about that and then can you promise to come back to talk to us further about (laughs) some of these implications because i think we only got to like one tenth of the book (laughs) yeah well absolutely i will be back and um you know we can talk about all the video intervention work and and all of that but to your point, and I think it would be a good way to end, um, you know, the question of how do we bring color back into our lives? Yes. Mary Ainsworth talked about delight, mutual delight, as one of the markers of a securely attached pair. So in the, in the pairs that she studied, the mothers and the babies, um, what she saw was that they had an aspect of delight within each other and in their relationship. And so I've done a lot to try to bring this concept of delight out into the open and to say, you know, it works the other way too. If we don't have delight in our bodies, if we don't have the capacity, we were talking about capacity before, if we don't have the capacity for delight in the things that delight us, you know, a TV show, the smell of Thanksgiving cooking, um, you know, hugging our dog, taking a walk, Whatever it is that makes you happy and makes your heart sing, Mm. then we can't delight in our children. And so one way to enter that world is to focus on delight and try to orient ourselves toward the things that delight us, toward somatic delight, sensory delight, sensory pleasures. And I don't mean in a kind of like sit down and eat your face off kind of way because that you become dissociated when we do that, right? But if we continue to pay attention to our senses 
then we we know when we've had enough. We are actually enjoying our food. We're enjoying the smell of you know the fall, um, the way the the sun the the snow falls. It, it was snowing here the other day, and I was like, oh my god, yeah. it's too it's too early for that version of delight. But to to start to cultivate delight in our yes. lives is a really simple human door we can all open every single one of us including like the dude in prison you know wherever you are we Hmm. all have those chambers of our hearts Hmm. where um that's possible and i mentioned in prison because i do a lot of writing with with buddhists in prison and i'm astonished um by the way that people can practice their lives in any circumstance macaroni and cheese there you go. Delight in macaroni and cheese. <laughs> no, it's hard to find delight in prison, but I'm sure I guess you can. Um, yeah. Of course you can. And, it and has nothing to do with your external experience. It's 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 your own your own capacity, like everything we're talking about. Right. 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 Yeah. So I see tremendous implications for therapy treatments, and you know, just basic every human being on the planet. You you can't delight too much. In positive exactly. psychology, we, we we have the concept in positive psychology of savoring. Yeah, that, that you there can you practice Absolutely. savoring. Yes, every item of food, you know, every sound of music or mm-hmm. any sound. Exactly. Every and it vis- really opens any your room, heart. Any room that you're in, you can practice savoring. And then imagine savoring your child. Right. 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 What which would be totally natural. You know, because why? There's another source of delight right over there, having their own little delights every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I just have to give a shout out to my mother, who is passed on, but boy, do I remember her delight in seeing me. Aw. <laughs> well, there you go. She used to so say, then... you know, I, I'm going to put this out to our audience. I'm in heaven when I see my Kevin. <laughs> oh, see, that is so sweet. So at the beginning of our conversation, yeah. you talked about how she was busy all the time. You, you were the right. 11th of 15. Right. There's more to it. And I had a feeling when you were talking to me about that, that that wouldn't be the whole story. Not at all. And, she was yeah. a natural mother. She loved being a mother. Oh, loved yeah. it. And it was a natural to her. So she so didn't like go. she didn't like teenagers, but she boy did she love young kids. <laughs> so, That's okay. You know, you were the apple of her eye, and you knew it. Yeah, yeah. To the uh, detriment of all my siblings, they haven't let me live it down. You know, <laughs> I don't get any Christmas gifts, so uh, you know they think I've had enough. So, uh, <laughs> so there's something That's about awesome. getting delight early in life. And boy, did I get a boatload of that. So I understand what you're saying. And even as you're talking, I could just see my mom's smiling face. So oh, just wanted wow. to put the so shout out that working model right there. mothers can do tremendously great things. Um, as can fathers. As can fathers. And, and anybody close to a child can do a tremendously yeah, valuable thing. My daughter just this morning, I said, we were talking and she was talking about a meal that someone had. That she loves to eat. And she was she delights in food. And she was saying, um, if you had had that meal, I know you would have thought of me and brought me home some of your leftovers, <laughs> which is such a like weird, wow. you know, <laughs> basic thing. But but the, I was like, OK, I feel so good about that. She knows I'm thinking about her. Right. Which and I, that's her internal working model, which I have to say is very different to what you report in the book in which we are going to ask you about when you come back on the next show of the positive mind that your daughter once said to you, you know, mom, I didn't ask 
to be born. Right. So that's a very different view. Um, well, that's one moment. On one moment. But you share a lot about how difficult it was for you to be a mom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we want to talk about that on your next visit. Good, good, good. We've good. been here with Bethany Saltman, author of the award-winning, you know, best one of the best science books of 2020 called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. You can get Bethany at her blog, uh, her website, bethanysaltman.com. And she's also a coach, a book coach, and, you know, for people who are looking to write books, especially psychology people. We'd like to thank you for listening today. Um, and we'd like to thank our affiliates for airing The Positive Mind, KACR 96.1 in Alameda, California, KAOS 83.9 in Olympia, Washington, KXCR in Florence, Oregon, KYGT, Idaho Springs, Colorado, KPPQ, Ventura, California, WGRN, Columbus, Ohio, and WRWK in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us, Kevin and I, at tffpp.org. That's short for the Foundation for Positive Psychology.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. Bethany Saltman, thank you so much for being on our show today. We'll see you again. Thanks for having me. It was really great to talk to you both. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody.